And how do you measure who gets into college in the admissions round in the class of 2027? The law is gonna say something about this. The law is gonna decide what the criteria are for admission to a handful of universities. It feels so inadequate to the task. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, July 14th. Today, I'm joined by Baratunde Thurston to talk about the Supreme Court decision that brought an end to affirmative action. As Baratunde explains, the ruling isn't just about college admissions. It's about whether race can be erased from the law and how we have conversations with each other in this divided country. We'll dig into all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Happy Bastille Day. To those who celebrate, uh, I would like to know more about you if you're a uh, French person listening to the powers that be. We might have a few things in common. I don't know. I'd just like to talk to you at some point. I'm joined today by Baratunde Thurston, who has a piece up, a Q&A with a very smart attorney about the end of affirmative action and what it means. And I think, I think this conversation is going to be important because... Man, even I as a journalist sometimes who covers politics, covers D.C., you know, don't understand uh, enough about the law to explain these things. And I have some questions I have for Baratunde. But first, Baratunde, um, you and I frequently talk about technology. I just want to ask you real quick. Uh, I know you're posting on threads. I follow you on threads. Do you have a quick thought bubble on how the threads experience is going? What do you like about it? What do you not like about it? I have a quick thought bubble. On Bastille Day, oui, oui. Hello, Égalité, fraternité. What's up? Vive la France. <laughs> with justice for black kids getting shot by cops. But it is good to be back with you, Peter. It's been a while since I've been back on the pod. And uh, I'm happy to see you back in your rightful throne, King of Puck Audio. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. As for threads, the thought bubble is I am perversely refreshed by the experience. I feel a sense of uncomfortable excitement, of indefensible joy, of <laughs> hypocritical glee. And I'm taking it knowingly way too personally because I am exhausted by the human entity that is Elon Musk. And I'm exhausted by our collective tolerance of his unformed, unfinished child being inflicted on all of us through wielding this overpaid for underutilized, brutally managed service called Twitter. Oh my God. I just, it feels so good to get that off my chest. I've been rooting for Mark Zuckerberg and I'm not okay with it, but I'm a little okay with it, but I know it's not okay to be okay with it. So I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, you know, putting that addendum on it, which I think is important. But that is the definition of a thought bubble. I really need you to talk to one of my besties, Tim Miller, who continues to have the same level of excitement in our group texts about threads in a way that 
doesn't really match some of our friends, but he and you are aligned, as they say in tech, <laughs> on their enthusiasm for shutting Elon down or pushing back, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk to you about something a little more thoughtful than just random brain farts posted on the internet. Those are judicial opinions and the six to three and six to two votes from the Supreme Court on June 29th that basically ended affirmative action in this country thanks to lawsuits against Harvard and the University of North Carolina and their admissions practices. You have a conversation up on Puck called the end of affirmative action and the attempt to erase race. And as you mentioned, you went to Harvard. You didn't grow up privileged, but you felt like race might have been a factor in your admission. You don't know. One of your pals at Harvard, she went on to Columbia Law School. She's now a civil rights attorney. And you want to have a conversation with her just about what these rulings mean. And I enjoyed reading this because, as I mentioned, sometimes these rulings come out. Maybe they're about student loans. Maybe they're about health care. And the journalism commentary immediately reverts to how is this playing? What is public opinion? Yeah. And one thing I didn't really quite realize until this ruling came down is decent size majority of Americans don't think race should be a factor in college admissions. And it's, it's, it's been that way for a while, actually. But like, that's not the point. The point is the law and the point is what the previous rulings put into place. And so I wanted to ask you, what did you learn mm -hmm. in your conversation with Anarima about, you know, what affirmative action was supposed to be yeah. in the first place? Before I get to that, I want to provide brief context for how this conversation came about when it did. I was in DC a couple of months ago. I ran into Anarima on a street corner. Neither of us live in DC, but we happened to be at the same street corner. And she knew this decision was likely coming down the way it would. And we were at a bar drinking. That's what pucksters do. And I said, <laughs> would you be down for a conversation about affirmative action and, and a court ruling? And I wasn't sure whether to do that before the outcome or after. Honestly speaking, I was running low on ideas for my column. And I thought I could do this conversation right now because I don't know what I'm going to write about next week. But it made more sense to do it after. Our conversation wasn't going to affect the decision, but it could affect people's understanding, including my own of the decision. In the interim, I found myself at another very Puck-like event, the Aspen Ideas Festival. And I went to a panel discussion that they apparently do every year called Supreme Court Review. This was a panel featuring Pamela Carlin, who is a very, very noted voting rights lawyer who's got great arguments before the court in the past. Neil Katyal, mm -hmm. who everyone knows and needs no introduction. Uh, Clark Neely from the Cato Institute. And it was moderated by Jeffrey Rosen of the National Constitution Center. So I saw these brilliant legal minds, not all agreeing, but engaging carefully about multiple cases, including affirmative action. And Jeffrey Rosen closed out with almost an admonition. He was like, you need to read these opinions for yourself. If you've never read a full Supreme Court opinion, do it. Decide for yourself. Don't trust the New York Times. Don't trust Fox. It's written not for lawyers. It's written for the public. It's accessible. Read the opinion. He said it like five times. I'm like, fine, Jeffrey, I'll read the dang opinion. And so I read the opinion and then had this conversation with Anarima. Returning to your initial question, what did I learn? First and foremost, I learned it's helpful to read a Supreme Court opinion. I just, if you're listening to this right now and you've only ever engaged with the court through fourth hand analysis, 
through push alerts your favorite, on your phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, tweets your favorite podcasters, including this one here. Pick one and just read it. It'll say it's 250 pages, but it's the margins are huge. It's not that long. You can do it. I have faith in you. I learned from Anarima about how the court, I think I learned about the, the history of the attempt to use law to try to account for the misuse of law. And there's a lot of history in this young country <laughs> with respect to race and how law was used in combination with race to subjugate certain people. And Anarima's telling of this case through immigration law, through responses to Jim Crow and slavery, through attempts to remediate that through affirmative action, through limitations on those attempts, through challenges of affirmative action. They just paint, a, for me, a much wider zoomed out story about, okay, we have this tool, law, that was used with tremendous weight to create inequality. We put a pause on so much of that, but the effects of that are still with us. And it wasn't just law, it was culture, it was economics, there were a lot of forces at play, but law was one of them. And we've been trying to use law to undo some of that and set the ship right. The court has been involved on both sides, restricting and expanding. And we're in a moment, in my view, of restricting again. Mm -hmm. But the limitation of law in the effort to try to achieve a level of liberty and justice just stands out as a, a big point I didn't have going into the conversation. Anarima at one point says, the, the law cannot account for humanity. And you see these justices quibbling and arguing and deeply fighting over textual meanings of words. And how do you measure who gets into college in the admissions round in the class of 2027? What the law is gonna say something about this? The law is going to decide what the criteria are for admission to a handful of universities. It feels so inadequate to the task. And yet, it's a tool we have and we got to try to use it. So that's one big thing I took away longer than I expected to take saying it. Brandon, I'm going to take a quick break and talk about this more when we come back. Welcome back to the powers that be, everybody. Baritone Thurston and I are talking about the affirmative action ruling, the ruling ending affirmative action, rather. A big point of your conversation with Anarima was the court is basically trying to erase race, as the headline says. You know, John Roberts has never been a fan of affirmative action. <laughs> we all knew this was coming. What are the consequences from a legal perspective mm -hmm. of taking race out of jurisprudence? Yeah, in terms of college admissions, which is what this case was about, it's going to complicate how these universities admit students. They had come up with a program that was aligned with the law, according to various court decisions. It's been baked into their procedures for decades now, and they're going to have to change that. They have to change the kind of questions they ask students. They're going to have to change some of what their goals are and how they measure their success they're going to have to change their interpretation of the word diversity when they decide we want a diverse class. They've all had an image of like, it looks like this. And for most of them, it's been a conservation of a distribution, right? It looks like mm -hmm. approximately 
10% African-American, 12% Latino, you know, like that's got to go out the window. They're not allowed to count that in that way. They're not allowed to use it in that way. Students can still represent themselves and reference their race in an essay, but universities can no longer assign credit or points to someone based on, on their racial background. They still can for their legacy background and their alumni, mm -hmm. parents' alumni status, for their athletic skill, for that background, for their test scores and their GPA, for those schools who still use test scores, which is a declining number. But race is no longer going to be allowed to be counted in that way. So that, that's the legal constraint, the new legal constraint that these, these universities will have to operate under. And, and we can see in what, you know, California school system, which has been dealing with this for much longer, They've tried to adjust in different ways. They spend a lot of money in outreach. People are doing it with test scores because there's still value. I want to tackle on, and I'm trying to be brief with this. There is a non-legal consequence to me that's a that's more important. The thing I took away most from my conversation with Anarima is what it does to us as students or as people anywhere in, in our human experience to vie for acceptance through a very narrow straw, <laughs> through a very narrow set of criteria. And, and what Anarima raised to me, which was striking, is if you're talking to a kid who's trying to get into a college and you're going to reduce that criteria to something measurable, objective and measurable, which is a big thing the court majority hung its hat on, we can't measure diversity. We can measure GPA and test scores and some of these other things. So you're kind of funneling everybody into a more quantifiable space then we're going to see ourselves as valuable only insofar as we can count that value through some point system that's explicit. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of that going on with wealth already in the wider society, but for students to think of themselves that way, she described it as a tragedy to reduce us and narrow our sense of self and winnow down our, our sense of humanity. And that's not what college admissions or any level of acceptance in society should really come down to. There was a version of that argument made by several Asian American students that I saw in the press, whether mm -hmm. they were surrogates put out there by the plaintiffs yeah. uh, or just random man on the street like interviews you saw on TV, that race is different for everybody. Race is different for me. I don't really want to talk about race when I apply to college, you know, yeah. but you're allowed to now write an essay about it if you feel like it. And, you know, an interesting thing that I took away from reading this was you had this conversation with her. How do you feel about AAPI applicants and their response to this? She said something interesting, which, you know, uh, being AAPI, the U.S. passed the Immigration Act, basically restricting Asian immigration, you know, back in the 20s or whatever, and then really didn't reopen immigration to immigrants from Asia until the 60s. Yeah. And... At that point, most of the immigrants coming in, not all, in fairness, not all, and certainly there were refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia who fall don't fall into this category, yeah. but a lot of them were professional immigrants who came exactly. here with professional skills. And it's just not something I considered. We certainly live in a time where discrimination against AAPI folks in this country is really high. Really, it's not good right now. Yeah. But she, she was saying that the flip side of that argument is Black folks and the descendants of Hispanic folks, too, like a lot of them didn't come here with professional skills. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the point of the affirmative action law in the first place. And there is, you know, the thing that we're not fully naming that I'll complete. And I'm so glad that that resonated with you because it was a 
big connection that she made for me, that Anurima made for me, that I did not have in my mind at all. I had no understanding of how she might answer that question. The pursuit of belonging in the United States by non-white people has essentially been a pursuit of whiteness. That's the racialized history of the country, in many ways explicitly so. And so she cited cases, a case in particular, exactly 100 years ago in 1923, an Indian man, a sick man, S-I-K-H, made a case, a legal case for his status as white in order to become a citizen of the United States. And he's like, no, I'm white though. Here's my caste category. Here's my, he had all these things that he, he served in the military, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm white, therefore I'm a citizen. And he was using the law <laughs> as it was at the time to try to get dignity and acceptance and human rights. And so they shut the door, they reopened in the 60s, as you reminded us, and we're only letting certain ones in. And you know, the phrase that didn't come up in our interview, what was in the subtext was model minority, mm. which is Asian Americans by law and by culture have been placed in this position between whiteness and true otherness, used as a lever and a wedge often to say, well, at least you're not that. You're not that dark. You're not that poor. You're not that dumb. We, you, you've got a degree. You're a grad student. You're a doctor. You're, you heal people. You do all the, you're an engineer. You run Silicon Valley, this and that, and blah, 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 blah. And so you're the, you're the good one. You're the one we want. You pass our tests. And our imagination of what it means to be an American is so weak that we can only explore and recognize someone's great contribution by its charting on a test. And we tell ourselves the Horatio Alger story of bringing ourselves up from nothing, but we don't actually want you to come here with nothing. That's just a story. In point of fact, we want people who've already proven by this narrow measure that they can make it so that we feel good about making it and we don't have to deal with these other people and their challenges, which are ours, but we've separated ourselves from that. It was really, really beautiful. I Even now I'm having new feelings about that connection she drew. And it makes me fired up because of, we don't have to be that separated, but this case was built around one white dude who's been trying for a very, very long time, Ed Bloom, mm. to get rid of this policy through law. And he said, I need to find some Asian plaintiffs after he failed to get this done years ago. And now he succeeded using that same community a hundred years later. It's really poetic in a devastating way. A shorthand for what you just said is, uh, is Trump calling Haiti and African countries shithole nations or shithole mm -hmm. countries. <laughs> there is a racist hierarchy in terms of how we talk about <laughs> immigration in this country. But yeah, I mean, Anarima mm. mentions, as you said, like race in the context of affirmative action isn't just these people get in and these people don't. It's a starting point for a conversation. And that's why I encourage people to read this piece because it's not just about the law, it's not just about the ruling. And I'm glad you said people should read <laughs> opinions and dissents because they yeah. are more accessible than you think. But everyone go check out Bertone's piece on Puck. It's really good. Thanks for doing it, buddy. Happy Bastille Day. Allez les bleus. Allez, Allez les, les bleus. Oui, oui, boss. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. 
See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.